We're in lesson seven of our series in the Thessalonian epistles. And uh, I titled this one, The Day of the Lord. That's not very original. I actually toyed with changing it. You'll never be surprised. The title would be then, Watching Your Weight, W-A-I-T. But uh, we'll probably let that one go. There is a a saying that goes, uh, you can fool some of the people, some of the people, uh, all of the people, some of the time, some of the people, all of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. I, I think you could say the same thing about pleasing people. You may be able to please all of the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you'll never please all the people all the time. And with a message like this, I'm not sure how many people I'm going to please because we have an interesting diversity among us when it comes to our understanding of eschatology, prophecy. I I thought about asking for a raise of hands to represent the various positions, and then I I decided to set it aside. But I I will say that there are a diversity of views here, and, uh, and I think that probably should tell us something. But I think there are some things that we need to keep in mind when we come to the uh, subject of biblical prophecy. So let me let me just set these out before you as we begin. First of all, many godly saints disagree about prophecy. You don't uh, it isn't a matter, generally speaking, about whether you're in the faith or out. We're not talking about fundamentals of the faith. And when I talk about many godly people, it would be interesting. I hadn't done it, and it would need a better church historian than I. But if you were to look through the great names in the faith, Calvin and Luther and and, and, and great missionary leaders and whatever, you would find a pretty wide spectrum of understandings as to what the Scriptures teach about prophecy. Some people have changed their minds about prophecy. I've actually been pretty interested to talk to some of my friends in ministry and have them say to me, well, I'm rethinking my position about that. Uh, And so there has been some mind changing. That's not bad, by the way. It's not bad to change your mind if you think you've been enlightened by better information. Uh, but it goes to say, again, that uh, we have to be a little careful about our dogmatism. Thirdly, we tend to read prophecy in the light of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. It is interesting the way different uh, eschatological views change with circumstances. At the end of when the, when the war to end all wars was fought, then things like post-millennialism became more popular because it looked like we were ushering in this wonderful new age. It's kind of passed away now because obviously things are looking a little different. So all of us read prophecy in the light of of, uh, where we are. For example, just take the Antichrist. Down through the centuries, I mean, the Antichrist has been countless people But you always pick the bad boy of your times, and you say to yourself, that's got to be him. Well, it could be him, could have been him. It wasn't. 
So we have to be mindful of the fact that our circumstances really do affect the way in which we read Scripture. And I should point out to you that the Thessalonians were not living in days exactly like ours. They were living in times of fairly significant persecution. And persecuted saints tend to view some prophecies a little different than we do. Fifth in my notes, uh, we are tempted to fill in the blanks. And, and I was thinking about this in, in terms of who we are. As, generally, as a church, maybe even as the church in Dallas, we are really into Bible doctrine and Bible knowledge. And there is nothing wrong with that. The problem is when Bible doctrine has blanks, we don't like them. We don't like not having something to fill in at every place where there's a gap. And when it comes to prophecy, there are gaps. God has deliberately not told us certain things. And we find it difficult. I'll say for myself, I find it difficult to live with those gaps because I keep wanting to fill it in somehow. Like a crossword puzzle, you just can't stand to leave the thing empty, even though that may be the way God has determined it should be. We should focus on those things that are clearly stated. Clearly, emphatically, and hopefully repeatedly stated. Those are camels. And Jesus says you ought to stick with the camels and not get too uptight about the gnats. But the problem is the gnats are more fascinating because not as many people see them. And, and, and in addition to the gnats, there are those things that just aren't said that are mysteries on purpose. And we need to leave those, I think, alone. We should focus on application. When you look at our text, it's mainly about application. There are a lot of things in this text that people who are interested in prophecy would like to find, but don't here. And, and all we can say is, when you look at what Paul is writing about here, he's writing about how Christians think and act about conduct. If we stayed on Paul's emphasis on conduct, we would have very little disagreement amongst believers about this text. When we depart and move elsewhere, we get a little more, we have a little more trouble. We tend to view prophecy through some sort of grid. All of us like to organize our thoughts and our material, and, and we call that systematic theology. It's a good thing to have, and it's an important thing to have. We need to understand that when a text says, if, anyone agree, if any two people agree on this, in prayer they'll have it. We need to understand there are other things about prayer that need to be considered as well. Systematic theology is important. But we all tend to view the, the, the prophetic details of Scripture in the light of some kind of system. And all I want to say to you is, I don't know of any system without difficulties. Now, that ought to just humble us a little bit. No system is perfect. Every system has those things which just give you pause for thought, and we learn to live with them within our system, but every system has its flaws. We ought to take note. That seems to say that no one system is probably, that we have, is probably 100% right, and all of the others are 100% wrong. Now, I want to talk about my conviction and a personal confession. I'll start with a confession first and get it over with. A, 
Prophecy is not my passion. I don't know why. It is not my passion. Some of that may be that in my education, prophecy was, was such an emphasized point that I just kind of wore thin on it. But it's not the hottest button in my list of buttons on my dash. And, and so I realized that there are other people for whom it, it really is a, a, a more important uh, and emphatic matter. B. I'm rethinking it. Years ago when I taught the book of Revelation uh, and we got to Revelation chapter 3, I made the comment that most people, I said at that moment in time, at this point in time, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. But I want to tell you folks, most of you believe it because it's what you want to believe. It's the easiest doctrine to believe and not because the evidence is so compelling you had no other choice. And I said at that point in time, I may change my mind. Just want you to know, I might change my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm in the rethinking process, and uh, I think I have changed my mind, actually, at that point. But, but I'm, I'm looking again at the, at the whole thing, not throwing it all out, but giving some reevaluation, and therefore my dogmatism level is, is a little low. But there's another factor, and this I've observed uh, from being in very good churches. Churches where the, the exposition of Scripture is viewed as very important and it's highly regarded. Preachers have difficulty uh, downgrading their teaching uh, based on the level of certainty in Scripture. Uh, years ago, when I was involved in a church, there were certain elements of prophecy that were dogmatically taught. And then... Some people changed their minds and different people came along. And there are people that were sitting in the pews who heard it said, they thought, this is the right view and all these other guys are wrong. And, and it was said with such dogmatism that it was like, you got to believe this. And then when somebody comes along and challenges that or says something different, people are saying, wait a minute. If this thing they held so dogmatically has changed, what about all the other stuff they hold dogmatically? So I try to distinguish. I have a commitment that I try to teach the Scriptures with the level of certainty and dogmatism I see in the Scriptures. Now, obviously, other people see things a little differently than I do, and they see dogmatism where I don't. But, but my contention is that when I preach the Word of God, I need to say to you, I've got a little wiggle room on this point. And, and therefore, if I do move a little one way or the other, or other people do, nobody gets uh, particularly uh, bent out of shape. The other thing I would say is that I have a little different view of my preaching than, than maybe some others do who preach. I am, I am convinced that my preaching is fallible, as you are. And, and what I see in that is not that, that there's a congregation here who is waiting to be informed about everything they ought to think or believe and that I'm supposed to fill all that in for you. My job is to help you become a better student of Scripture. And, and there are times where I may say something that some of you are going to sit back and say, I don't buy that at all. You may come back to me and I may change my mind. I've done that. Believe it or not, I've done that. But, but that's really the goal. And so I have to tell you that some of the sermons that have been most moving for me, if you can put it that way, is I sat back there listening to somebody else and saying, that's just flat wrong. 
And man, when I preach that text the next time, I'm going to fix it, you know. And, 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 but it's caused me to think more carefully about that text. And so even when somebody may be a little off the mark in your mind, that can be a very helpful thing to you. If your goal is for you to be a better student so that you can understand the scriptures, as it were, firsthand. I think I've already said this, but I'm going to add it. I've added some points to my notes that aren't, aren't on your PowerPoint. We're tempted to believe what's easiest to accept. Would you not admit that? We are tempted to believe what's easiest to accept. Now, we ought to be warned about that because God's truth was never written so that it would be easy to accept when it comes to salvation. It isn't easy to accept that I'm a sinner that deserves eternal wrath. It isn't easy to accept there is nothing I can do to merit God's favor. And that salvation is the work of God. It isn't easy to ex accept that God chose me long before I chose him. And that my choosing him was a result of his prior choice. The sovereignty of God and salvation is not easy to accept, but it's true. And so we have to be careful that we don't come to truth and say, yeah, I feel good about that. Truth doesn't always make you feel good. It makes you think right. And, and so let's keep that in mind. Another thing. Hebrews, where we just were not long ago, says it's really all about faith. And faith is believing in what isn't seen. And, and for some of us, what we'd like is a nice, neat roadmap of prophecy so that we have all this. And when the Lord comes, we're just checking him off. Yep, yep, got that right. Yeah, he's, he's got that one right. And, and go down the list. But the reality is it's about things that aren't seen. And that means it's going to be about things that aren't said. And in those instances, we have nothing left to do but trust to trust him in those in those uh, gaps where wherever they may be. Well, I've already said this, too, but I'll just say it one more time. I'm not sure that all preachers are as honest as they ought to be when they preach. I'm not sure that all preachers feel the freedom to tell people I'm not really as clear on this point as I am on that one over there. But I think we ought to be. I think we ought to be honest about those things which are dead certain. And those things which are more in the realm of conviction or even of speculation. And you know I've been known to climb out on that limb sometimes myself. Paul has prepared us. And, and I think one of the things that we need to see in Thessalonians is that while Paul has mentioned the second coming of our Lord in virtually every chapter, it sort of builds. And so I've, I've been encouraged uh, by some to, uh, to, to, to take the time, and I may do that, to spell out, okay, we're, even though you're wavering around, where are you at this point in time? I think I, I, I may come to that when I get to Second Thessalonians, because that's where Paul really begins to develop things more fully. So I, I think that I will do that. But there is a development that takes place so that when you look at, at chapter one and verse 10, it talks about the Thessalonians turning to God from idols to wait. And, and that's one of the key words that I'm beginning to see. Wait. It's not what we like to do, but it's what we're called to do. And waiting is often where some of our biggest problems comes to wait for his son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead and delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, that's sort of laying out the major themes without explaining them. And as the text develops in First and Second Thessalonians, we get more information. I, I left the verse out, not because I forgot it, although I've done that, but because I didn't have room on this slide. We really should start in chapter 2 with verse 16 where it says, wrath has come upon them, and the translations differ a little bit, but completely or whatever. So that in 2.16, it's talking about those who oppose the preaching of the gospel to Gentiles. And he says, wrath has come upon them completely. And so what you see is that that when the Lord comes, there is going to be wrath toward those who actively oppose the gospel. And it's preaching. Then in verses 19 and 20, you see the positive side of that because he says that's going to be where your hope and your joy and your crown is. Those saints into whose lives Paul has poured his life, they will be there and they will be part of his joy and glory in in the coming second coming of our Lord. Verse 13 of chapter three, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God. And Father, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So here you see the goal of working, of sanctification, which is to perfect the saints so that they are ready uh, to meet our Lord. Not perfect, but that they are ready to meet our Lord. And the word all there, I think, is critical because he's about to talk about the resurrection of those saints who were dead in chapter 4. And that really does mean, therefore, all. And then, of course, we have chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, which will come. But let's look at chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will come down from heaven uh, with a shout of command, with a voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will suddenly be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. I see this passage as speaking about our Lord's second coming primarily in terms of its benefits and blessings for believers. When I get to chapter 5, I see this text, uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus, and its impact for unbelievers. And the contrast there between how unbelievers view the second coming and how believers view the second coming and how they behave in a way that corresponds to that. Now, I've already told you that I don't expect to cover all this text thoroughly, and I've left myself some wiggle room next week to, to get back into these verses if need be. But I don't think that we can study this text without understanding the day of the Lord. It seems to me this is the critical phrase in in chapter 5, 1 through 11. And if we don't understand the day of the Lord, then we're not going to get what Paul is is talking about. So here, given all those texts that I gave you in your study guides, uh, here here is how I would summarize the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It is a day of judgment on Israel's enemies. And so it is a time when Israel's enemies are going to be judged and in a sense God's going to vindicate and liberate Israel. In the Isaiah 13 passage, the enemy is Babylon. 
But in other passages that speak of the day of the Lord, other uh, places would be mentioned, other, other empires that have given difficulty to the people of God, and God is going to bring his judgment upon them. That's not dissimilar from what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but I'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, the day of God's judgment comes on disobedient Israel. You notice that text in Amos chapter 5. There were people who were saying, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and they were thinking of it in terms of category A. They were thinking about, here is the time when God is going to come, and he is going to whoop my enemies, and he's going to get them good. And Amos says, God says to him through Amos, uh, actually, the day of the Lord is the day when God comes to judge sinners. And what he's saying is, among whom some of you are chief, to use Paul's words. And so Amos is saying to him, you know, you guys ought to be real careful about saying, I'm eager for the day of the Lord to come, if you're living in sin. Because the day of the Lord is going to be a day in which God is going to come in judgment upon you. Now, this next text, that was Amos 5, in Ezekiel chapter 13 is interesting in the light of what Paul says in our text, that they say peace and safety or peace and security, and they're thinking that it's a time when they're the safest, when in reality the, the, the judgment of God is imminent, and they're not even seeing that it's coming. Here he says that God's uh, day of, uh, uh, of the Lord will bring about punishment on those false prophets who have been speaking prophecies that are not of God, but that are giving comfort and consolation to Israelites in their sin. And so God says, not only am I coming generally upon the nation Israel in its sin, but I'm also coming upon those in particular who have actually facilitated that sin by false uh, prophecy. An interesting text, remember the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, and that's where he says, I will send Elijah before the great and coming day of the Lord. So there we see that the day of judgment is coming, but before that day of judgment, Elijah is going to come and talk, and then it talks about turning the hearts of the sons to the fathers and the fathers to the son. And so there is some hope that there is a day coming when God is going to bring deliverance before that judgment falls. And, uh, and of course, that's the text that will, be, uh, that will be prominent to us as we move into the New Testament. Now, the final one I'm, I'm looking at at this point is Joel chapter 2. And that's the time, this is the clearest, because some of the texts on the day of the Lord are almost exclusively judgment texts and not really an emphasis on salvation. In Joel chapter 2, you have the day of the Lord described as a day of judgment. But then you have a call to repentance and the promise of blessing for those who do repent. This is the text that Peter picks up in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching at Pentecost and he's going to say, in effect, you executed the Son of God, but God has raised him from the dead and he's coming back to judge his enemies. But he lands on that text in Joel and says, but this is the opportunity to repent 
And that judgment then would not come upon you, but you would enter into the blessings which God offers. So that's kind of a quick summation of the Old Testament in terms of the day of the Lord. Now let's think about the day of the Lord in the New Testament for a second. Interestingly enough, the expression, the day of the Lord, is not found in the Gospels, at least not by my, uh, by my search and, and by my computer. What you do see is, for instance, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, it is called that day. Now, what I am trying to say is that I believe it's there, but it's not there with the label, the day of the Lord. It will be certainly uh, identified in those terms later in the New Testament. But our Lord Jesus uh, has much to say. Incidentally, if, if you take a look, uh, Craig Beale has taken and, and done a, a chart of comparing the things that our Lord says in Matthew 24 with the things that we find in our text in Thessalonians. And they are very, very similar in terms of the of the uh, items that are that are mentioned and dealt with. So you do have that text in Matthew chapter 24. And our Lord certainly does speak uh, with regard to judgment that is coming. Then there is the uh, judgment and salvation that we see in Second Thessalonians chapter one, uh, verses five through twelve. That's really an interesting text because it says to the believers, I know that you are suffering and you're persevering and know this. The Lord Jesus is coming again and he is going to bring deliverance and blessing to you who are faithful. But he is also going to bring judgment upon those who have rejected the gospel and persecuted you. So there is both sides of the coin in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Judgment upon the wicked, salvation and blessing for the righteous. Then there is uh, that text in Second Thessalonians 2, which says that the day of the Lord is actually an issue of false teaching. Remember, he says... I don't want you to be disturbed by the teaching of some that the day of the Lord has already come. And that's where he goes into that in detail. So the day of the Lord is also a dimension of prophecy that can be abused and false teachers can use it in a wrong way. Then we get to this section where the day of the Lord is viewed as that point of consummation, of graduation, as it were, where God's saving work is brought to its conclusion and perfection, to its completion. And, and I think probably just the one text of, of all of those would be Philippians 1.6. Paul is confident that he who began a good work in you will finish it until the day of the Lord. So there's the completion point, And you see that in those other texts. What's very interesting is 1 Corinthians 5, 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is that text pertaining to the individual living with his father's wife. And Paul says, I have disciplined him from afar, as it were. I have disciplined him from afar for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. So even for that rascal, you know, who is truly a believer, there is discipline that is being exercised with the view to him being presented, uh, as it were, to Christ with, uh, in good standing before him.
Finally, there is that time in the day of the Lord when there is boasting. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14 that it's going to be a day in which the Corinthians are going to boast in Paul and his associates. They are going to boast and delight because of their coming with the gospel and their faithful ministry. And in effect, they're being used of God as the instruments by which they would be saved and grow in their faith. And now they stand before the Lord Jesus. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that I want to present you as a bride spotless before him. That was Paul's goal is to present these saints faultless before God. And now here they stand, as it were, on the day of the Lord saying, praise God for Paul, that rascal. You know, he made my life miserable. He got all over me for some of the things I was doing, but he was getting me in the right place. And then there is that dimension where Paul will boast and rejoice, not only over the Thessalonians, as we've already read, who is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, but also the Philippians, that he is going to rejoice over them in the time of the coming of the Lord. So what you see is the day of the Lord is a day of judgment, but it's also a day of consummation and blessing and rejoicing for those who know the Lord Jesus. Now, let's talk about some possible problems that may be related to this. I was looking at the commentaries and and observing why they thought this subject arose. And and, uh, at least some of them took the position that this was a question that the Thessalonians had asked Paul about, and he was now answering it. That that expression now concerning is found in in 1 Corinthians and, and here. And in some instances, it may well be a response to a question that's been raised. I'm not positive that that's true here. And the reason I'm not so sure is because I think Paul understood some of the difficulties and the downsides, as it were, that are related to the day of the Lord. Let me just go through them quickly. For the unsaved, it would be them being caught off guard when they are not ready. In other words, when they're not saved. Uh, And you see that in relationship to those in the days of Noah. They were eating and drinking and carrying on, thinking everything's going to be just like it always was. And those in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Unprepared. That's one risk for the unbelievers. There is with that a false sense of security on the part of unbelievers. They not only are living their lives unaware of the judgment that's going to come, they are confident it isn't coming. Now, think in your minds of 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says that there are going to be many who are going to say, where is the promise of his coming? You know, that, that day of the Lord. Where is the promise? From the days of, you know, long, and, and, and long ago. Nothing's happened. He hasn't come yet. He's not coming. That's the conclusion they gain from the delay. Now, Peter is going to say they don't understand God's purpose in his delay is to show patience so that some will come to faith. It is not slackness on God's part, but salvation that motivates our Lord. Um, this is personal opinion. So you can put it off in that category in the, in the theological toolies and, and make of it what you wish. I think when people think that there's peace and security... My sense, and it's because I'm looking at our world through our own circumstances, I believe in those final days, 
Christians are going to be viewed as the Al-Qaeda of the world. And that those who are unbelievers are going to attack Christians and Christianity as the source of all evil. If I read scripture correctly, there's going to be a time when it looks like the world is prevailing in that regard. And it's in that moment of time I can see unbelievers saying, that takes care of that. We got these Christians under control. We couldn't be more secure. You know, I mean, that's what we're saying about Afghanistan, Baghdad and Al-Qaeda. You know, if we could just get those guys under control, then we could live and be secure. They feel, whatever the reason, they feel an unreal confidence that not only are they safe, but it's just certain they're there. There's not even a, a, a wisp, seemingly, of doubt. Thirdly, saints may not be prepared. There's the, there's the kind of scary part, isn't it? When you look at the Lord's warning about being ready and, and him finding us doing what he has called us to do, the great danger would be for the saint to say, in effect, our master is long in coming. He won't be here for a long time, so it doesn't matter. It's interesting. and I, I, I throw that instance of uh, Proverbs chapter 7. Context is way off. But there, Madam Folly is saying, my husband's gone on a long trip. Inference? We can do whatever we want. It's the same logic, I think, that a Christian might fall into, just as unbelievers have, that it really doesn't matter. It's like going off on vacation, leaving your kids, your adult kids at home, and saying, now, I expect the house to be clean. And what they say is, okay, I know their flight's Thursday at 1 o'clock, so Wednesday night it's going to be a panic. We're going to clean this joint up. But see, you're just going to, you know, you're going to cram for finals. Uh, and they get caught off guard because we don't know the day. False teaching and being deceived. Jesus, the first thing he says to his disciples, when, when Jesus says not one stone is going to be left on, on, on top of another and so on, and they say, what are the signs that these things are going to be? The first thing Jesus says is, be careful you're not deceived. So there's obviously occasion for false teaching, and we see that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. There's also the warning in Matthew 24 about being alarmed because Jesus is saying, before I come, there are going to be some bad things that are going to take place. There are going to be some painful things, and it's possible that believers might be alarmed by that. Don't be alarmed. And in addition with that, disunity. He says that the love of some will grow cold. In fact, some will hate one another. Those will be hard, difficult days as Jesus describes them. And, of course, the last one is the fixation on its timing. Isn't it interesting that when you find, you're talking about times and seasons, you have to go back to Acts chapter 1, and here are the disciples beating that old familiar drum. When is it going to happen? And, of course, they're hoping sooner than later. But Jesus basically says, it is in your business to know when. It is your business to proclaim the gospel to those who are lost in their sin. I think I see a connection between our text. There's a lot of connections between our text and, and uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I think they relate to waiting. If you think about 1 Thessalonians, here's one question. Paul is delayed in his coming to them, right? 
Paul left them rather abruptly, as necessity would have it. He tried to return, but Satan had hindered him. He tried multiple times to return, and Satan hindered him. And so the question would be in their minds, why hasn't Paul come? Why has he delayed in his coming? Paul's answer, it isn't because I don't love you. It isn't because I don't care. It isn't because I haven't tried. It's because Satan's hindered me, and as soon as I can get there, I will be there. But I'm sending Timothy, and I'm writing this epistle. Well, those are all good things, and they answer the question. So, I think when you come to the the, uh, passage in 2 Thessalonians 4, in verses 13 through 18, they anticipated that the coming of the Lord was going to be soon. And, And you see that expectation throughout the New Testament. And consequently, when some of them begin to die off, there are two questions. (laughs) The first question is, what happens to these guys who have died? And that was what Paul sought to answer in 4.13 through 18. The next question is, if people are dying, then our Lord's coming must not be as soon as we thought. So what does that mean for us? And I believe that's what Paul is dealing with in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He's talking about how believers should look at the delay, from a human point of view, at their weight, and how they should think and conduct themselves in relationship to that seemingly ever, uh, ever-growing ever reality. Okay, the day of the Lord the Thessalonians, and the unbelievers. Paul says to them, I have no need to write anything to you concerning the seasons, the times, and the seasons. Why not? I think the natural response to that is, and especially from other things that Paul has said, the response would be, because I have already spoken to you about that in detail. Right? There are certain things that Paul has done. Brotherly love, he said, I don't, need to, I don't need to write you about that in the sense of informing you. You know about that. I think what Paul is saying is, yes, we may have spoken about this, although they didn't understand about dead believers, because he had to answer that question in the preceding context. He had spoken to them, but I think what he's saying is, the reason I don't need to write you It's because there isn't anything more to say. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that that no man knows the timing of that day, not even the Son. And if that's the case, then we have to live expectantly. We have to live as though His coming could be any day, but we don't know what that day is. Do we know or may we have some clue about the season? Yes. But it's very clear that there's a sense in which we can't peg that day and say we really need to cram for finals the day before. We just can't do it. And so when Paul says, I have no need to write to you, part of it is when you go back to Acts chapter 1, I have no need because Jesus said, quit asking the question and start evangelizing the world. That's what was most important. So it seems to me that it's not that everything has been said, although I think in a sense what little needed to be said was, but that nothing more needs to be said. Believers know that the Lord is coming with certainty. They don't know when. 
That's the difference. Yes, we know that he's coming. Yes, we know we are to be prepared and watchful and waiting and working. No, we do not know when. And that's what we see in verse 2. Unbelievers are certain that day is not coming. They are convinced that they are safe from God's judgment, that they may eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow they will die. They have no dread of an eternal future, no dread of facing God. And so he uses two analogies to describe how the coming of the Lord is going to catch unbelievers off guard. The first is it's unexpected. It happens in the night. I think it was last Sunday, was it not, that McKinney Bible Church had to call off their services. And the reason? Somebody had come during the night, broken through the doors, and helped themselves to whatever. And the police had to come in and they had to do fingerprints and whatever. And so they just basically said, don't come. And that happens in the night. Nobody expected it. Nobody was there waiting. It just happened. And it happened at night, unexpectedly. That's what thieves do. They catch people, as a rule, they try to catch people unprepared, unknowingly. But the second part is it's uh, irreversible. That's what I see about the pregnancy thing. Now, I know there's other fathers out there among you. And, and, you know, my first try at this, my first experience was obviously more traumatic than the last. And and we've been through it now with some of our, our daughters as well. But there's a sense in which you have to say that you know that labor pains are coming. Do you not? You don't know exactly when they're coming, but you know they're coming. That's part of the whole birth thing. But here's what you do know. Once it starts, there's no stopping it. It just goes on. Now, I know that here I am looking at you, these poor women thinking, you, you really, you really, how could you be so calloused about our pain? I know, I know. I, I haven't been on your side of it. But the reality is, once it starts, there is no turning back. And that's the thing I see. It catches unbelievers off guard. And once it comes, there is no way to stop that process and say, whoop, whoop, I, I, didn't, I didn't vote for this. You're in. And you're in it for all that it, it brings forth. That's the way the day of the Lord will be for unbelievers. Now, I know I'm running short on time, and that's why I've chosen to stay with just this study of contrasts. And, and I want you to think about our text for today. I want you to think about it in terms of, of, the, of the, the main picture that you get. And that is, Paul is laying out the day of the Lord in the sense of how it impacts and how it's responded to by unbelievers and how it affects believers. And, and just look at the way in which he takes these images and he'll say, here's the way it is for them. Here it is the way for you. Here's the way it is for you. For them, it is night and darkness. And that's where, of course, the thief comes for you. You live in daytime. You live in the light. So things ought not to catch you off guard. You ought to be aware of these things uh, in that sense. It comes to them as a thief in the night. It comes to you as something that you expect. In fact, as something that you long for 
and work for. They feel secure that it's not coming. We feel certain that it is coming and that it involves judgment. In the nighttime, they get drunk. In the daytime, we're sober. In the nighttime, people sleep. In the daytime, people are awake and alert. And perhaps to sum it all up, for them, it spells wrath. For us, it spells salvation. Boy, that's a big difference. But I want you to think about those contrasts now as, as, uh, as I try to wind this up. And here I'm going to say, forget the PowerPoint, forget your notes. I rewrote the conclusion. You have to understand things happen between Saturday night and Sunday morning. And uh, it happened. So let me go through the things that I, I want to say to you. We have to be a little, a little careful in evaluating when it comes to prophecy. We have to be a little cautious about um, teaching that's too dogmatic on prophecy. There are some things that are certain. Wherever they are, dogmatism's call for. I'll never forget in my young years as a preacher, I asked the question of one of the, one of the great scholars, I thought, uh, and I still think, and I said, in effect, do you think an elder in the new work, we called it back then because it was all theoretical, do you think that he would have to be pre-trib? And uh, he smiled and he said, um, Dr. Walford wouldn't like this, but no. I don't think so. And then he started to turn and walk away and he stopped and he turned back and he said to me, incidentally, post-tribbers have some very good arguments. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is here I was a young preacher and I had been hearing preaching on eschatology with a great deal of, 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 of dogmatism and, and definiteness. And here was somebody I'd been hearing it from telling me, these other guys had good arguments. All I want to say to you is, folks, some of those other folks, whether I agree with them or not, they do have some good arguments, and we just need to keep that in our minds. It is not a group of idiots over here and us over here. There are people who think seriously about Scripture who have come to other conclusions. I'm not saying we shouldn't come to conclusions, but I'm saying let's not hold it as though... Our faith rests entirely, our salvation rests entirely on it. Study all sides. If you've, if you've taken a certain position, that's fine. Just make sure you've considered the other sides and the other texts often that don't seem to fit yours. Recognize your preferences. Recognize your preferences. Because our preferences have a way of working their way into our theology. I hate to admit it, but I think it's true. And so take your preferences and your desires into account. Fourthly, what does this text do for us? And I would say it really ought to do something for us in the realm of evangelism. As, as I read these verses, unless I am absolutely cold and calloused, I am thinking about those members of my family. I'm thinking about those people in my neighborhood. I'm thinking about other people in the city of Richardson that I don't even know. And I realize those people are headed for this destiny. And that ought to, that ought to do something to me. 
Now, the other thing that it does for me in the realm of evangelism is this. When I read the description of, of the, the sort of certainty and security that an unbeliever has, I have to say to myself, there is no way, humanly speaking, that the lost are going to be saved. Folks, they think we're nuts. They think we're ill-informed. It's not them who are in, problem, in, in trouble. It's us. And that says to me, the only way that anybody is ever going to be saved is through the work of God. It is he who is going to have to break through that smug, self-righteous, self-confidence that no judgment's coming. He has, he can, and he will. And what that means for me is, if I really care about my unsaved relatives and neighbors and acquaintances, I better be praying for him. I better be praying because the opposition and the odds are incredible. But the dangers are such that I ought not to be untouched. Faith, love, and hope. This text gives me a little different look. And you notice now it describes that as armor? I'd say a couple of things. One, you think immediately of Ephesians chapter 6, don't you? You know, the helmet and the sword and all that stuff. It's interesting that somehow... Paul doesn't feel the necessity of just repeating what he wrote to the Ephesians. And he doesn't feel the necessity of having uh, faith be equated with one implement of armor. He sort of swaps them around here. And I think the point is this. When Christians look forward to the future and the difficulties and the opposition that will be there, what he's saying is, these things which he began the book praising the Thessalonians for having and in which they are growing. He now says, faith, love, and hope are your means of protection in the spiritual warfare in which we should be engaged. I'm going to make this my last point. Worldliness. If when we look at the contrasts between the way in which unbelievers look at the day of the Lord and respond to it as opposed to the way we do, it's contrast every which way, is it not? I, I, what, I, what I really want people to see is, is from Ephesians chapter 4 and other texts is that the process of sanctification involves every aspect of a person's life. I said that when, when I was dealing with, with sanctification and sexuality uh, in early chapter 4. Sanctification involves every aspect, every dimension of the believer's life. And, and so we need to see the difference between the way in which God wants us to live and the way in which we used to live as worldlings. So in a sense, when Paul is describing these characteristics, he's really describing the way the Thessalonians were, not just the way other people will be or are. What I'm saying is this. When you come to those words, encourage one another, I would say this. We will not be looking toward the coming of our Lord the way we ought to if we are too cozy with the world. Will we? If we're too cozy with the world, we're going to think the way they do. 
We're going to think we've got lots of time. We're going to think we might as well just enjoy ourselves and, and indulge ourselves in pleasures that are illicit and whatever. And, and we're going to be in a lot of trouble. The world is not encouraging us to think rightly about the second coming of Christ. And that's why we need to be people of the word, because that's why he tells us. We need to be people of the word and we need to be people of the church. I mean that in the sense of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but we ought to be gathering and encouraging one another. The reason why Paul says we ought to encourage one another is because we see things along this column. And if we're going to encourage anybody the way they ought to be encouraged, it's going to be according to the word of God. And it's going to be as a body, as we're urging one another to be rightly oriented to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. It's vitally important for us to be in the word and in the church. And I think that's what Paul is saying to us here. Well, I'll say one more thing and then I'll stop. It's possible that someone is here. And, and they really come in the other column. And I have to say to you, God's word says judgment is coming. God says it doesn't all end at death, but all men are going to be raised from the dead and all men are going to stand before God and give account. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, those apart from Jesus Christ, will spend eternity apart from him. That is, that is a terrible destiny. And I would simply urge you to trust in Jesus. He is the solution, the only solution. He came and bore the penalty for our sins. And the reason that he can say that God has not called us to wrath but unto salvation is because Jesus Christ bore the wrath. And if we trust in him, we get the salvation. If we reject his salvation, then we get the wrath. So trust in him. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to think rightly about these things. If there are things that I've said that are inaccurate or distorted, make that clear to these lovely people. Make it clear from your word. And uh, help us, Father, to long for that day, a day when it will be salvation and completion for us. In Jesus' name, amen.